My name's uh, Nick, and uh, I'm one of the elders here at Hope Church. We're going to be looking at Nehemiah this morning. So we've been in a series in Nehemiah, and uh, we've got to Nehemiah 9. So if you recall the story of Nehemiah, is uh, Nehemiah was a man who, who served in the court of Artaxerxes, um, the king, and uh, he felt God, uh, Nehemiah felt stirred in his heart to go back to Jerusalem because he heard reports that Jerusalem was in ruins and uh, the wall was in ruins, the temple was in ruins, worship of God was not happening in Jerusalem and it stirred him so much so that he was bold enough to talk to Artaxerxes, which was a big move. You didn't just talk to the king in those days. And uh, God blessed him and honoured him for that move. And King Artaxerxes' heart was moved and he allowed Nehemiah and he gave Nehemiah the resources to go back to Jerusalem and to start rebuilding Jerusalem and bringing back the worship of God into uh, the the temple of Jerusalem. And so we're at chapter 9 in the story and uh, the wall of Jerusalem has been rebuilt and uh, last, in the chapter 8, um, the Israelites, they had a great celebration. And uh, they all got together. They had the Feast of Booths. They celebrated. There was joy. There was thanksgiving. And uh, the, the well-known verse, the joy of the Lord is my strength, was um, coined in chapter, Nehemiah chapter 8. And uh, it was a great time of celebration. And then we come to chapter 9 in Nehemiah. And the people of God are still together. But the mood slightly changes, okay, and uh, by, led by the Levites, who were the priestly tribe, Israel now makes themselves right with God, okay, and uh, if you could turn to Nehemiah 9, and uh, I'm not going to read the whole of Nehemiah, I'm in fact only going to read one verse, in fact I'm only going to read part B of one verse, okay, I'm going to read Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 8, part B, or the second part. And uh, what it says is, this is talking about God, and it says, For God, you are righteous. Now this is the most important phrase in the chapter, in Nehemiah chapter 9. The declaration that God is righteous. God will do what is right. He will do what is right for him to do as God doesn't learn righteousness. He is just righteous. His standard for righteousness is himself. His holiness, his worth, his glory, his beauty, his name, his ways, his truth. These are the standards for goodness and righteousness in this world. There's nothing above him. He is absolute so God is right. God's standards are right. And what God's, God's standards define what righteousness is. They define what rightness is. They define what holiness is. And because God's, um, God's righteousness and holiness, because uh, he is righteous and holy, he must, his righteousness must be satisfied in order for us as humans to be forgiven by him and to know him. And because of his rightness and the rightness of his ways, God will uphold his glory as well. And so us as humans are never happier when we are fulfilling our purpose as humans, which is to know God and to give him glory. 
in what we do because this acknowledges God's rightness and it upholds his glory. Now, I want you to hold on to that truth, these truths this morning as we look into this chapter. I want you to hold on to the fact that God is righteous because we're going to be unpicking what's happening in this chapter, but we're also going to be looking at Jesus and what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So here in chapter 9, we have what is one of the longest prayers in the Bible. And when I was growing up in North London, um, we used to go to this church, um, Evangelical Church, and uh, each worship time, there was uh, music and there were prayers in the middle, and there was a, a godly old man called Mr. Rogers. Now, Mr. Rogers, when he prayed, he prayed, okay? And he prayed, 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 (laughs) to the point where Mr. Eveson, the vicar, used to say, okay, Mr. Rogers, if you could just bring it to a close now, thank you. It's a true story. And uh, what the priests are praying in Nehemiah 9 is a Mr. Rogers prayer. (laughs) It's a very long prayer. And they are representing the people of God who had gathered to listen. And as you read the chapter, it's clear, as you read chapter 9, you read the prayer, it's clear that there was weeping, it's clear that they are distressed. Now, what are they distressed about? Well, the clue is in verses 36 to 37. They are distressed because they are still slaves. They have messed up. They were promised this land that they were in in Jerusalem was part of that land hundreds, thousands of years ago. And God had given them this land. He delivered them out of Egypt during the Exodus. He'd taken them into the land, and they had messed up. They had rebelled. They had gone their own way. And God had, uh, they got to the point where God had exiled them, and the Babylonians had taken them away to Babylon. And the only way that they could return to this land, and this is where we are in Nehemiah, is actually still under slavery. They could only come back to Jerusalem because King Artaxerxes had allowed them to, God had spoken to him and allowed them to come back. They were still slaves, and they were sad about that. And this prayer is like a kind of modern-day public inquiry where people unpick what's happened, why it happened. You know, what can they learn from it? What can we do differently? What, What can we learn from this situation that we find ourselves in. And what they do firstly is they remind themselves of who God is. Verses 6 to 15 in Nehemiah 9, they recall that God has made heaven and earth and that he sustains them, that he is God, that he is absolute and has always been, that he keeps his promises, he's gracious, he's kind, that his way is perfect, he's righteous, he's he's their provider, he will be glorified. So far, so good. The prayer is going well. And then we get, to chat, we get to verses 16 to 31. And the people of God, they remind themselves of what they have done in the past. And we see here six expressions of Israel's rebellion. But what we also see are six expressions of God's response to this rebellion. So they recount how they've been proud, how they've worshipped other gods, how they've been rebellious against God's laws and his ways, how they did evil, and despite numerous warnings, they wouldn't listen to God. 
And then they recount how God dealt with them, how he was ready to forgive, how he was gracious, how he was merciful, how he was slow to anger, how he did not forsake them, how he even disciplined them. And they recount how when he disciplined them and people took them over, how God was merciful to them and delivered them from their enemies. And they even recount the time when they were taken into exile by, into Babylon. And even in, even in that, God heard their cry and he didn't make an end to them. And the story of, of the people of God up to this point is actually a tragic story. It's a story of God and his greatness. It's a story of how they've, he's promised them and given them a land and how they basically messed it up. And how God, in his graciousness and mercy, constantly delivered them and showed them mercy, mercy, mercy. And in this, and in this prayer, as they express this, all they can do are two things. They can cry out to God and they can re-establish the covenant. They re-establish their promises to God. And in chapter 10, verse 29, you see, you read that they made an oath to walk in God's ways again. In chapter 10, verse 32, they committed themselves to serve God in his house again. Basically, they were saying, God, we're sorry and we promise we won't do this again. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Because this is exactly what their forefathers had done for thousands of years previous. We're sorry and we'll do better. There's two problems with that response. The first problem is that the odds aren't very good, are they? There had been thousands of years of failure. Failure, mercy, failure, mercy, mercy, failure, mercy, failure. And they were caught in a sin cycle as a people. And then the other problem is, is fear. Maybe, maybe God would say, I'm done with you and the mercy will run out. God, Remember, God is about upholding his glory. Remember, God is righteous. I ask you to hold on to that. He hates sin. He will bring righteousness where there is sin. He will bring sin to justice. Maybe God would say, I'm done with you. He doesn't have to keep on being merciful, does he? He's God. So this is not a happy place for them to live and exist in. And this is how the Old Testament ends in this failure, mercy, failure, mercy cycle. It's sad, it's tragic. And the sad thing is, is that maybe this pattern looks familiar to some of us in this room today. Sorry, God, I'll do better. Sorry, God, I'll do better. But the good news is that Jesus came to break this cycle. And today, what I want to look at is how do we deal with sin in our lives as a people of God? And I want to look at some biblical foundational truths. But I also um, want to give you some real practical ideas and imp you know, the imp practical implications of the truth of God. Now, I love books and I love lists. So when I see a list of 100 books that you must read before you die... I'm all over it. So I will go through the list. No, 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 too, too hard, too hard, too hard, too hard. Winnie the Pooh, yeah, read that one. 
Um, I'm not, it's not that bad, but yeah. But what I want to do now is I want to give you four passages, four verses, four pieces of scripture that you must read before you die. Okay. And if you read and grasp these, you will die a happy person. I guarantee it. The first one is Luke 22, verse 20. So Jesus, just the night before he died, he was having a meal with his uh, disciples, his followers, and he took some bread, he broke it, and he said, this represents my body, that's going to be broken tomorrow. And then he took some wine and he poured it into a cup. And he said this, he said that this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And as the Old Testament Israel continually repented and renewed their promises to God, they knew deep down that they could not keep their side of the bargain. Remember, God is righteous. Sin cannot go unpunished. And in order for for the sins of humans to be dealt with, a perfect sacrifice has to be made to satisfy the righteous wrath of God. And each year, sacrifices, the people of God brought sacrifices to priests. The priests inspected it, they looked at it, a dove or something, or a lamb. No, that's not perfect, sorry, rejected. Or yes, that's perfect, that will do, we'll sacrifice it. And they sacrificed a perfect offering to make amends for their sin. But in Jesus, a new covenant and a new promise was established by his blood on the cross. Jesus was perfect. And in Jesus, a perfect sacrifice was made for all time so that those who put their faith in Jesus are covered by his sacrifice, by his blood. The second verse is Ezekiel 36, verse 26 to 27. Ezekiel was an Old Testament prophet who prophesied about Jesus and what Jesus would do and what God was going to do through Jesus. And he said this, he said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a flesh, a heart, sorry, a heart of flesh and I will pour my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice the first spirit in this, um, in this scripture is a small s, it's about attitude. God is dealing with our attitudes, dealing with our spirits through Jesus. And the second spirit is a capital S, God himself. God himself will dwell in us through his spirit. We are now, as followers of Jesus, if we put our faith in Jesus, we are now temples of the Holy Spirit. And in this new covenant, God has put his spirit in us, which causes us to walk in his ways. It's an attitude change. God is causing through Jesus in us an attitude change. The Old Testament covenant was external. It was pressing people to obedience. You must obey. But they couldn't do it. But now, in Christ, God's Spirit dwells in us. We are, as as followers of Jesus, we are prompted by the Holy Spirit. We are convicted by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit compels us. The Holy Spirit works obedience in us. It works obedience to God's ways in us. Because we now have relationship with God and God dwells in us through his spirit. The third piece of scripture, now bear with me on this, is Romans 3 verse 20 to 26. I'll read it to you. For by works of the law, 
No human being will be justified in his sight, this in, in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What on earth was Paul going on about in this? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to try and explain it to you. Because we as humans, by nature, are sinful. We will never, in our own works and ways, be made right with God. We can't meet God's righteous standard. Remember, God is righteous. I keep on coming back to that. He will not change. His righteous requirements must be met. But through Jesus, God's righteousness was made known. And the righteous requirements of God's law were met. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. What does that word mean? Propitiation means something done to someone. God put his wrath on Jesus for you. That the sin that you had, God put his wrath on Jesus for you. We sang it this morning. Jesus took stripes, he took beating, he took punishment, he took our sin, and God put that wrath on Jesus for you. And because God's righteous requirements have been met, as we put our faith in Jesus, all that Jesus has accomplished becomes ours. Our sin has been punished. God freely justifies us. He makes us right before God through his grace. Our sin has been dealt with. We receive this free gift of justification by faith. So as we put our faith in Jesus, we are covered by his sacrifice, by his righteousness. And unlike the Israelites, who always in the back of their minds had this fear, will my sacrifice be enough? Will my sacrifice be enough? In Christ, we have every assurance that God's mercy does not run out for those who put their faith and, their, and love and put their faith in Jesus. Because Jesus' sacrifice was enough. Jesus' sacrifice was enough. And I'm reminded of that old hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine, heir of salvation, purchased of God. We've been purchased by God, born of his spirit, washed in Jesus' blood. We have every assurance that God's mercy is ours. And the fourth verse is Romans 5, verse 17. It says, Paul writes this, For if, because of one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So when he's talking about through one man's trespass, he's talking about Adam, Adam's sin. And that's the man, you know, mankind's sin. But through Jesus, we are made righteous. It's a free gift of God. And we are now in Christ. What does that mean? We're in Christ. We're covered. We're protected. We're loved. But more than that, those who are in Christ receive sonship. 
in Christ. We are made new creations, new beings. Our old sinful self has died and we are now clean. We are made righteous. We are saints. We are holy. You might not feel like it this morning. Your old fleshly bodies, you know, corrupted, tempted to sin, say things that you regret, think things you don't want to think. But inside, you are clean. You are new. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this verse goes on further. It says, so that you will reign in life. The grace of God and all that Jesus has done for us enables us to be free. Free to enter into God's presence as we've done this morning. Free from fear. Free from the power of death and the fear of death. And free from sin in our lives. In the story of Exodus, the Israelites had been passed over by God's judgment. They put blood on their doorposts and God's judgment had passed over them. And as they travelled out of Egypt, they hit the Red Sea. And they were like, oh no, we're still in the land of slavery. And many Christians feel like this. You're forgiven, but you are still slaves to sin. You're accepted, but you still feel in bondage to all kinds of sin and habits. And it's anything but reigning in life. Condemned. And you say, sorry God, I'll do better. Sorry God, I'll do better. But the truth is, is that when you're in Christ, you have been delivered from the power of sin. So that you can live a life of overcoming sin. Paul writes in Romans 6 verse 14, Sin shall not be master over you. Paul is not saying... You're under grace, so stop striving, relax, let go, let God. Simply hand it all to God. That's not what Paul was saying. We are told to overcome. We're told to be ruthless with sin in our lives. We're told to watch out. We're told to keep guard. We're told, Paul writes in Philippians, that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are saved, but we must be alert. And One of the things that I really was reminded of at the conference last week was that we are in a battle. We are in a huge battle. Our say, as, um, as Paul writes in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against authorities and powers of this dark world. And Paul encourages us to put on the full armour of God. Stand against the devil's schemes. Stand in, the, in truth. Stand in the truth that I've just been talking about. The devil is real. He's prowling around. He's not happy that you know Jesus. He's not happy that Jesus has saved you from your sin. He wants to destroy you. Don't let the devil take you out of the game. Don't let the devil take you out of the game with sin in your lives. Keep your guard up. I've just been thinking about this morning and just... Feel stirred to say this, really, that there's people in this room who are struggling with lust and pornography. There's people in this room who struggle with pride, and you don't want to deal with issues in your marriage or in your life because you're just you don't want to you're too proud to admit it. Unforgiveness, holding on to things that someone has done to you, that leads to self-pity and bitterness and jealousy of other people. 
God's called you. He's given you works to do. Don't run someone else's race. Other gods, money, security, all the things that the world chases after but will all be gone one day. And God wants to deal with some of these things in our lives this morning. And as we deal with sin in our lives, remember that you are now in Christ. You come from a place, a foundation of acceptance, of love, of assurance. And I want to spend the last five minutes or so looking at five things that we can do to deal with sin in our lives. In Romans 6, the first thing is know the truth. Romans 6, verse 2, Paul writes, How can we who died to sin still live in it? The truth is, is that you who are in Christ have died to sin. Not a few holy men, not a few of the, the special people, whoever they are, not the leaders. All of us, all of us who are in Christ have died to sin. It's not a future experience. It's not a transcendent state that we're all attaining for. No, all of us now, if you're in Christ, you have died to sin. It's past tense. It's already happened. Paul writes in verse 7 of, of um, chapter 5, the, for one who has died has been set free from sin. If you're dead, you don't sin. Our old selves have been crucified with Jesus. We have died to sin. You might not feel very free from sin, but God declares this so. And if he says it's true, it's true, regardless of how you feel. People nowadays are in the habit of picking truth from the Bible. And this is one of them. <laughs> okay, The Bible declares that in Christ you are dead to sin. This is an act of faith. And this is something that we are called to agree with God on. In Romans 6, verse 11, Paul writes, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourself dead to sin. Consider it done. We don't make it happen. It's already happened. This isn't mind over matter or positive thinking. Because it's true, you know, make sure you consider it true. Cast out doubt and don't step back to your former mindset. Thirdly, take responsibility. In Romans 6, verse 12 to 13, Paul writes, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. As a new person, we are to take authority over our bodies and its members and refuse to allow sin to reign in our lives. We're called to live out our freedom. We're called to make righteous choices, what we read, what we touch, what we listen to, what we spend time doing. We need to take responsibility. Paul writes in Romans 6, verse 18, he says, you are now slaves to righteousness. Remember this prophecy from Ezekiel that I read before, where Ezekiel said, God will cause us to walk in his ways. You used to be Sin slave. You had no choice. You had no freedom. People in this world say we're free, but they're not free. They are slaves to sin. But as people in Christ, we are now in bondage to righteousness. Righteousness dominates your life. That's why you feel convicted by the Holy Spirit. Our duty is to daily say yes to our new master. Yes to the promptings of the Spirit in us. Yes to 
to righteousness. Fourthly, the grace of God teaches us to say no. Paul uh, writes in Titus 2, verse 11 to 12, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. The grace of God helps us to say no. How does it help us to say no? Well, firstly, because the root issue has been dealt with. Jesus has dealt with our sin. And the grace of God declares that you are totally accepted and your failure and your sin has been dealt with. The price has been paid for your sin. And grace tells you that Jesus wants you for his own. He has a purpose for your life now and in eternity. So why mess around with sin? People, are instructed, people instructed by grace make decisions because their hearts have been changed. So why mess around with sin? We're not reluctantly yielding to an external law anymore or a set of rules or regulations like the Old Testament um, Israel was doing. We are, we're not trying to appease God anymore because we're accepted. We don't need to appease God anymore. We have a relationship with God. We are in Christ. We are now instructed inwardly by his Spirit. We are motivated now out of love, out of a love relationship with Jesus. And our relationship with God is not sin-centred, it's father-centred. We live as children of the king. We don't need to try and impress God anymore, as he is satisfied with Jesus. As he is satisfied with Jesus, so he is satisfied with you. So you say, I'm not going to do that, because I am a son of the living God. I'm not going to do that because I am in Christ. I call it the in Christ test. I ask myself this. Would someone in Christ watch that? Would someone in Christ read that? Would someone in Christ say that or do that? I'm in Christ. And lastly, the grace of God teaches us that we are free from condemnation. Romans 8 verse 1, well-known verse. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. Satan will say, look at you. Call yourself a Christian. Look what you just did. That's it. God's angry with you now. I think you've probably gone too far. Condemnation can cripple us. It fills us with despair. It causes us to give up. But God wants, God's word declares us free from condemnation. What did condemn us, our sin, has been dealt with on the cross by Jesus. We have been set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And when we sin, when we mess up, we deal with it. We repent. And then we stand on the truth that we've heard this morning. And we remind ourselves that our sin has been dealt with by Jesus. And we walk free from condemnation and we make better choices next time. So we started this morning looking at God's people in Nehemiah under the old covenant <clears throat> and how they were stuck in this sin cycle. And we've seen that God, through his grace and love, has instigated a plan to end this cycle through Jesus. And through Jesus, sin has been dealt with and God's righteous requirements have been satisfied. So all that put their faith in Jesus are not only forgiven and accepted, 
and enter into a relationship with God, but can and should reign in life over sin, over temptation, over bad habits, over bondage, over addictions. And the question is, this morning, to all of us, is will we believe the truth of God's grace? And will we let it set us free? Free from sin, free from bondage to habits. Something that the Israelites declared in Nehemiah is that God is faithful. And the Israelites were unable to keep the end of their bargain. And they constantly broke their covenant with God. But God is faithful. And he never broke his end of the bargain. He is a covenant-keeping God who will never fail those who trust him and trust in his word. So if you believe in and trust in what you've heard me talk about today, God is faithful and will keep his promise to you. Today is decision day. The band would like to come up. Today is freedom day. <laughs> Something that the, uh, you know, I'm sure they said, didn't they, when they were conquering Americans have said it in the past, I think. But this is real freedom day. This is freedom day. Bring your burdens, bring your sin to God and walk in your freedom, the freedom that has been made possible through Jesus. Now, I, I, as I was preparing this, I had a couple of um, dreams um, a couple of weeks ago. And I just feel that they, I want to share those this morning. And I know Ian has also got a word that he wants to share. And the first dream was of a hostage situation. And um, it was, I can't remember all the details, but there was a hostage. They were trapped. They were in you know, kind of bondage. They couldn't get out. And suddenly, they realized that the door was open, that they could just get up and walk out. And they weren't actually hostages. And I just feel that that's for someone here this morning. You've been in bondage. You've been a hostage to sin in your life. And God wants you just to stand up and walk free from it today. And the second picture, a dream, was of a swimming pool. And in the swimming pool were all these um, spikes coming up that were stopping someone from just jumping into the water. And I just feel that God... Um, wants to say that actually that, was, that it's not a real swimming pool. Swimming pools, you can just jump in. And God wants you to realize the benefits of your salvation. And you've been listening to a lie. And uh, I think Ian's gonna, got a word, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to uh, sing a song and have a response time. Yeah, okay, can we stand together? Um, I just feel that we do um, need to respond to what God's brought to us this morning um, and uh, f for me I got, God gave me a word a couple of days ago and uh, it, it was just about us um, just being satisfied with something that's not good essentially being satisfied with, with stuff that's not, not from him and the picture that he gave me was of, a, of me holding a glass and, and, and drinking out of this glass but what was in it was just murky you know, it wasn't great um, but I was, you know, I was still holding on to it and sometimes, you know, God asks us to uh, to put things down and, and to change things. Um, it says in in two Corinthians thirteen that He's changing us from one degree of glory to another. And I think this morning there's a there's a step we can take in in that. Um, but you know, sometimes we're scared to put something down because we 
want to have something. We don't want to have nothing in our hands. Um, uh, uh, but God wants to change what's, what's in our glass and take away that murky stuff, stop us from drinking some of that murky stuff that we, that we just continue to drink. And um, one of the, uh, the things about the new Tottenham Hotspur Football Stadium that amazed people was how in the bar the glass is filled up from the bottom. Um, uh, so you put your glass down on the bar and it fills with drink. Um, that won't sound too great to you, but I think if we, if we put our glasses down on God's bar, he can fill them for us. And I think this morning he wants to, he wants to do that. Just uh, another verse out of Revel Revelation 21, verse 6 says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And so just today I just think let's, let's respond to what we've heard from the Word of God, to the presence of God that's been with us. And let's just put our dirty glasses down on God's bar and just say, fill them up, Father, fill them up. So as we sing this final song, let's, you know, if you want to respond, and sometimes it's just good to take a step forward and, and, and respond. Mm -hmm. uh, come to the prayer area at, at, uh, on our left as we look at the stage. Um, prayer team, if you could go over there now, it would be good. Let's, let's do that now, just as we worship. Let's respond to him and ask him to fill our glasses with the water of life.